You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. As I already said, this is a passage that I think most of us uh, are familiar with. Uh, I I don't have the exact stat in front of me, but a survey was conducted a few years ago, and it it turned out that something like less than 10% of Christian uh, evangelicals surveyed could recite uh, all of the Ten Commandments, and even less could recite them in the order that they're presented in the scriptures. And this is, a, um, this is a frustrating thing, I think, for the church, because these are moral precepts that we receive from God that uh, we all recognize instinctively because of their prominent nature in, in the text are important, but, but they are presented to us in the Old Testament. And so sometimes there's a disconnect among Christians understanding how it is that we appropriate these, uh, these kinds of uh, precepts into our lives. And then to complicate things further, Uh, We often hear things like uh, that the Ten Commandments are abrogated, which means that they're they're sort of they passed away and that they're replaced by uh, the law of Christ or by the law of love. We sometimes are are told that unless uh, a commandment is repeated in the New Testament, uh, that we are allowed to assume that it's no longer in force. So I, um, I wanted to do a brief series here in the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to be uh, sharing with the church um, three times between now and the summer. So we're going to do three different messages. And those sermon series here will break up into three parts. So today we're going to be talking about what is called the preface to the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're going to be talking in the next message about what's called the first table of the law which is the first four commandments, uh, which primarily have to do with our responsibilities and our duties towards God. And then part three will be the second table of the law, which is uh, commandments uh, five through 10, which primarily have to do with our responsibilities and duties towards our fellow men. 
So today is going to be a bit of an overview sermon. Um, the, the first two uh, verses of the uh, Ten Commandments are what are known as the preface. Um, so I'm going to take this shorter group here to uh, take an opportunity to give an overview of what the nature of the Old Testament law is, the purpose of the Old Testament law in the New, uh, New Testament church age, and then we'll talk specifically here about the preface and what it is that we can learn from the preface of the Ten Commandments itself. So just to sort of orient ourselves to the text, as I, as I mentioned, uh, the preface of the text is found in verse 2, but we need to think about what verse 1 says as well. And so the preface reads, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And you'll notice I'm using in some of these quotes, I'm using some of the, the King James English uh, because I'm drawing some of this information, some of this reflection from a, a catechism written by a man named Benjamin Keach. And he uh, more or less took the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which we've all, we're all familiar with, we've all heard uh, pastor quoting at various times, and he adapted it for a part particularly for a Baptist use. And so I'm quoting from that because if you were to pick that up, you would find that there's less disagreement with our, our church's articles of faith in that document than there are in the Westminster Confession uh, or Catechism, for example. Uh, in the second, uh, the first table of the law, which is Exodus 20, verses three through 11, uh, it governs our responsibilities toward God. And you can break these up into the four different commandments, uh, which sort of break out like this. And the, I'm gonna go through these quick because we'll be discussing these in uh, the next sermon series in a little bit more detail. Uh, but the first commandment is to worship God and God alone. Uh, the second commandment is to worship God alone, but only in the way that he has commanded us. The third commandment is to worship God alone and to treat him with proper reverence. Uh, and the fourth commandment is to worship God alone, but to worship when he is commanded. And you notice that I framed all four of those commandments in relation to worship, because that really is our primary uh, focus and responsibility towards God is to worship him and worship him properly. Uh, it should be noted that, that these commandments have implications for uh, our relationship with other human beings, other persons in our church. Uh, it's not as though we can totally separate the first table from the second table. Uh, for example, uh, the command to worship God on the Sabbath uh, includes uh, reference to the fact that we're not allowed to prohibit those who are working for us uh, from working on the Sabbath. So if I was to own a business, uh, it would not be proper for me in, in many cases for me to require my employees to work a shift that, that causes them to not be able to worship. That would be one implication of that commandment that would have an impact for how my, I relate with other people. So we'll explore some of those other implications when we get to that uh, in a, a month or so here. Uh, the second table of the law is in Exodus 20, verses 12 through 17, and it governs our responsibility towards each other. And this can be broken up into the, the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and 10th commandments, which have to do with uh, how we obey our parents and other authorities in our lives. Uh, it would also extend to how, as people who may be in positions of authority, employers, um, parents, people who are in government, how they respond to their children or those people who are under their authority. Um, the sixth commandment governs how we think about and respect life. Um, the uh, seventh commandment, has to do with sex and marriage and sexual purity, and then is followed by how we relate to property and wealth uh, in the commandment not to steal, how we relate to honesty and truth, and then how we relate to our own contentment and to our own internal motivations. So we'll, uh, we'll go into some of those more in depth 
Uh, I think we'll all learn, I know I have learned as I've begun to study this, that the commandments are far uh, more extensive than just these sort of 10 bullet point prohibitions, but really these 10 um, precepts or these 10 governing principles that God has given us govern our whole life um, and every area of our life. So a few, a few things that we need to understand about the nature of the Old Testament law. And the, and the reason this is important for us as Christians is because, as I said, there are a number of misunderstandings out there among Christians about how the Old Testament law is structured, how the Old Testament law functions in the life of Israel, and then also in the life of the church. Um, and, and you'll also run into a lot of these kinds of questions as you're witnessing to unbelievers especially if you're witnessing to people who are sort of somewhat knowledgeable about Christianity. Um, so there's some apologetic importance that is helpful for us. So historically, um, the church has um, held to what's called a threefold division of the law. And so looking at the, the law, how it is structured, how it was used uh, in the Old Testament, and then how the apostles used the, the law in the New Testament, we can break it up into three categories. So we have the, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. And I'll go through what these are and what they mean, but those were the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. So to start looking at the moral law, if you'll uh, take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter two, and we're gonna start in verse 12. So Romans two, and we're going to start with reading verses 12 through 15. And Romans 2, 12 through 15 reads, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the, the main thrust of this passage is that the, the law of God, we see a few things. First, there's, the law is being used in a couple different ways in this text, right? So in verse 12, we talk about people who have sinned without the law. So in one sense, we can say that there's an aspect of God's law that is not universal. Uh, and we'll talk about that uh, when we get into the, the next passages here. But then it also indicates here in verse 14 that the Gentiles who do not have the law, so they do not have access to the, the law of Israel, the, the Old Testament, uh, particularly the first five books of the Bible, they don't have access to this law. But by their very nature, they often do what the law requires. And then Paul's conclusion to these different premises that he's putting forward is that because uh, people who do not have access to the law, who don't have access to the written word of God, still often have an intuitive understanding of the moral precepts that God expects of all people, that therefore the law itself must be written on their hearts. And so this teaches us that there's a, there's a universal aspect to God's law. There's universal elements in the law that one doesn't need to have access to the Bible itself or to some sort of special revelation in order to understand. 
So flip over just a few chapters here uh, to Romans 5, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 14. Romans 5 and 12 through 14. And it reads, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even when those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And so this is a continuation of Paul's argument. If you were to read verses 1 through 12, Paul is building an entire doctrinal treatise. And this is his basically his understanding of how it is that sin came to be. This is his doctrine of the fall. And so he established before that all people have this intuitive understanding of the requirements of the law. And so he goes on here to say, even though there was sin in the, in the world before the law was given. So the law itself, the, the written law, which was delivered to Moses, was delivered at a particular point in time. And so before that point, nobody had access to this law. And after that point, only people who could access either the written copies or some sort of oral transmission had access to that. So there were lots of people in the world who didn't have any access to that. But even, even before this law came, where no one had access to the written law, there still was sin. And sin can't take place unless there is some sort of moral law. And so Paul is establishing here with, with everything he said before and, and a few chapters that come after this, that everyone, because they are made in the image of God, because they are created in the image of God, they, uh, they instinctively know uh, on some level what it is to be obedient to this moral fabric of reality. And so that really is what the, the moral law is. It's God, God is righteous and just and perfectly moral. And so as he created the world, that world is created with certain moral realities built into it that are reflected in nature. They're reflected particularly in men and women as they image God. And so we, we understand that that image is marred and, and changed and, and sort of defaced by the fall, but it's not entirely erased. And so even, even in, in um, places in the world where the gospel has not gone, they have no access to the Bible, there still is an intuitive understanding that it's wrong to murder people without cause. It's wrong to take another person's property without cause um, and, and to greater or lesser degrees. You do sometimes find, um, you know, uh, people groups that are so um, affected by sin that some of these moral precepts are lost entirely. Um, there are, you know, there are, are cultures and people groups where killing is considered a normal thing. And so you, you, the way that you protect your life is not by assuming that your neighbor is going to act in some sort of moral fashion, but you are able to defend yourself. Uh, and, and a lot of times that means killing yourself, not killing yourself, but killing someone instead of being killed. So I wanted just to look real quickly at two examples that prove that the, the laws as given in the New Testament, the, the Ten Commandments predates the giving of the Ten Commandments. Because this is, this is one of the things you frequently will hear from certain parts of the church is that, well, certain commands um, are universal, certain of the Ten Commandments are universal, but um, some of them just came into being when the Ten Commandments were delivered. This is most commonly uh, applied to the, um, the fourth commandment, which has to do with 
uh, our commitment to worship God in a certain regular fashion. Uh, sometimes it's also applied to the second commandment. Um, I know some, some people in our congregation have a background in the Roman Catholic Church, and the Roman Catholic Church has basically stated that the second commandment and the prohibition against idols uh, is more or less invalid, and they, they're, they're allowed to do that. And so I wanted to give two examples of, of the Ten Commandments here that um, show us that these laws existed prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments themselves. And so the first example, you don't have to turn there, I'll go through it very quickly, but the first example is from Genesis 4, and it's, it's verses 10 and 11. It says, the Lord said, and he's speaking to Cain here, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out, is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. And so we see very clearly, not just in this place, but in um, the Noahic covenant where God makes a, a prohibition against murdering uh, people, against taking blood of an image bearer without cause, that the command to preserve and promote life uh, is, is one of the very first sins that's committed is a violation of this command. Um, the next one I want to look at uh, real quickly is Exodus 16, and I'll look at chapter uh, verse 28 and 29, which reads, the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so this, this, um, this passage here comes in the context of the giving of the manna. And so the people are given this miraculous um, providence for their, their nutrition and for being able to eat in the desert where the food is scarce. Um, and they, they gather for six days uh, and they're, they're given exactly amount. If they, if they gather too much, it rots. If they don't gather enough, there's still enough somehow. And God commands them that on the sixth day, they will, they will, um, they'll gather twice as much and it won't rot. And so most of the people obey this, but some people continue to go out on the Sabbath day and they don't find anything. And so Moses goes to God and he seems sort of confused. And God's response is, that the Lord has given the Sabbath. So on the sixth day, he gives bread for two. And on the seventh day, no one should go out to do this work. Um, we see that the Sabbath is reflected in uh, the creation accounts themselves, that God himself rests on the Sabbath. And we saw, and we'll, we'll dive into it more, but we saw in uh, the commandment itself that God appeals to the fact that he created for six days and then rested on the seventh as a pattern of morality for the, the people of God that they would do likewise. And so we, we could go through other examples in the Old Testament uh, that would show that the other commands uh, are also um, given in various forms or are seen being punished in various forms before the actual giving of the Ten Commandments. But you can go through all 10 of the commandments and you'll see that they are prohibited uh, before Moses and the Israelites reach uh, Sinai. And so it's clear that these commands are woven into the fabric uh, of how God chooses for his creation to unfold and how he chooses for his people to act. Um, so we can't lightly dismiss them as some bit of Old Testament law that's no longer applicable. So as I said, um, all people are um, creating God's image and the uh, image of God is how we intuitively know what is right and what is wrong. In large sense, our conscience comes from the fact that we are in the image of God. We can instinctively tell when we are doing something that puts us out of alignment with the way we were created. So a lot of these moral commands are available to us by the, what theologians classically call the light of nature. 
right? There's certain principles that we understand intuitively because of our, our intuitions, because of our understanding of how nature unfolds, because we instinctively know that if I would not want something done to me, that it's likely that other people would not want that done to them. So I know I wouldn't want to be murdered. So I, I have a good idea that I shouldn't murder other people because they probably would not like that very much. Um, but more than that, we see that these Ten Commandments, as the apostles uh, reflect on them in the New Testament, these Ten Commandments are seen as a summary of the entire moral law. So as I said, the, the moral law or the Ten Commandments are not just these Ten discrete principles or Ten discrete commands that only apply to specific things. The prohibition to murder is not restricted just to the idea that I'm not going to actively kill somebody. Uh, it extends to how I interact with people in terms of my attitudes towards them. We see that Jesus extends the, the um, rejection and the prohibition of, of killing to our very thought life and how we become angry, uh, angry with people. And so we've learned a lot about this as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount in our recent studies. But a few verses that are a little bit more specific in James chapter 2, um, we see that James says, if you show partiality, you are committed to sin or you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so he's, he's saying to his readers who are uh, Christians, who he, he sees as Christians, he's writing to other believers that they're being convicted by the law. Uh, and so he, he clarifies what he means. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one has become guilty of it all. And then you, we might be tempted if we just read that to think that what he's meaning is the whole Old Testament law, the entire Pentateuch, all the ceremonial um, commands, all, this, all of the civil laws. Um, but what he clarifies here in verse 11, he says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do, do not commit adultery, uh, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So James here is restricting his statement about being convicted by the law, and his way of doing that is specifically by appealing to two of the Ten Commandments. We see something similar happening with Paul in Galatians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 18. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And so on one hand, he says you're not under the law, but then in his clarification about what the works of the flesh are, he names sins that all fall under the precepts and under the, the, um, the umbrella of these 10 commandments, these 10 governing principles that God gave his people. So even though the apostles talk, <clears throat> excuse me, even though they talk about being free from the law, they're not saying that we are utterly free from the moral law of God. We still bear obligation to obey God's commands. And when they're going back to clarify that statement to make sure their audience understands what they mean, they don't point to specific ceremonial things. They point to these universal principles that were given to the people at, at Sinai in the Ten Commandments. Um, we don't see them saying things like, now the works of the flesh are evident. Don't eat bacon. Right? We see them, these ceremonial things that are important in the Old Testament law, um, they are abrogated because they no longer apply, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but they point to these 10 principles as the abiding moral standard that all people, and especially the people of God, 
are obligated to structure their lives according to. So that leaves us with the, uh, the ceremonial and civil law. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna speed through this. I'm not going to go into as much detail because this is not as directly pertinent, but I wanna make sure we cover it. The ceremonial law and the civil law are tied to the existence and operation of Israel as both a religious body and a political body. And so we know that in the Old Testament, um, Israel was a religious system. It was a religious group that had specific religious um, obligations, specific ceremonial obligations. But we also know that it was a nation and all nations of, of any sort have some sort of body of law, some sort of body politic. But we know that since Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament ceremonies and that Israel itself uh, is no longer a political entity, at least not in the way that they was in the Old Testament, that the ceremonial and civil laws no longer apply. So these are laws that were given for the purpose of structuring Israel's worship and for the purpose of structuring Israel's um, its, its societal and cultural and civil structure. So laws about how the judges are to operate, how the priests are to operate. We don't have Levitical priests anymore. So those laws are not relevant to us as Christians who are no longer under a Levitical priesthood because we don't, uh, we don't follow the King of Israel because we're not citizens of the, the, the Old Testament nation of Israel. The laws that are specifically structured around the civil organization of the nation no longer apply to us. So it's not, it's not to say that the law doesn't apply and that there aren't elements of these laws that are important, but we're not bound by them in the same way that we are bound by the Ten Commandments, which are universal and given prior to the existence of, of Israel as either a distinct religious body or as a distinct civil body. So if you, uh, if you would turn to Colossians, we're going to look at chapter two real quick to just, just put some scriptural feet on the fact that the ceremonial law uh, no longer applies. So Colossians 2 and verse 14 through 17. Paul writes, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in darkness. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in a question of food or drink or with regard to festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he, he has a very similar passage in Ephesians 2. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but he says in 2.15, that God abolishes the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And so the, the key word to, to sort of lock onto here, and different translations render this differently. Um, I'm reading the ESV where it says, stood against us with its legal demands. That word legal demands is one word in Hebrew. And then the Ephesians passes the word ordinance. Both of these phrases are translating the same Greek word, which is uh, where we get our word dogma. And so Paul is, is in these passages, what he's saying is that the, the ceremonial law of Israel, the things that are added into the moral law that are specifically ceremonial in nature, those things have been, have been uh, passed away. They've been abolished by Christ. And then in verse 15, this is where it's really important. 
the, the one of the major reasons that the ceremonial law existed in the Old Testament was to set Israel apart from the rest of the nations. It was to mark them off as a special, sanctified, set-apart people. And so their religion was different. The things they ate was diff were different. The way they washed themselves was different. The way they built their houses was different. Everything was different about them, even the way they made their clothes and how they cared for their animals. All of those things were different, marking them off from the Gentile nations around them. And what Paul's argument in Ephesians is, is that these ordinances served their purpose of marking off Israel as different from the nations. But now that in God's unfolding plan of redemption, Israel as a distinct people group is no longer going to be uh, highlighted the way it was, and that the Gentiles and the Israelites will now be brought together in one person, in one person under Christ, that they will be uh, created new, one new man in the place of the two and making peace. Those laws now actually serve to act against God's purposes in the world. Not that they were wrong when he applied them, but since God's purpose at that point in history is different, those laws are now acting against God's purposes in the world. And so he has abolished those for this new era of unity between the, the Jews and the Gentiles. The civil law, we could go through similar examples, but I, I don't think we need to, to establish the point. Uh, it's prim they're primarily concerned with uh, issues that are specific to Israel's context. We even see in the, the Torah itself that God is giving them laws that are not even applicable to them at that time, but would only become applicable to them once they come into the land and have their possession. There's laws about how to how the king is supposed to rule, how to treat the temple. All of these things show that the law, the, the civil and ceremonial laws are given for a time and place. Sometimes they're even given to Israel before the, the appropriate time and place. You know, Israel couldn't enact the laws that govern the kingship or the priesthood until after those things were established, but God still gave them. And so now that those things, uh, sort of by a reasonable deduction, now that those things have passed away, those laws no longer apply. So a few examples might be the way that it commands people to build rails around the roof of their house. Well, in Israel, the common architecture involved an, an area on the top of the house that was flat, that served as additional space uh, this is why we see that uh, Bathsheba was bathing on the roof. It wasn't because this was some sort of torrid thing that she was doing. That's because that's where you went to bathe. And it was usually protected. And the only reason that David could see it was because he was in a, a building that was up higher than a lot of other ones. So he was able to see over some of the protective privacy kinds of things that were built in. And so the, the, the command to build a rail around your roof doesn't apply to us in situations where we don't have common access to our roof. If someone wants to go on the roof, they're going to have to do it in a sort of extreme way. So we're not expected to do that. But there are often elements of the moral law that are kind of embedded in these laws. Um, if you read some of the classic reform confessions like the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession, they use this language of general equity. Uh, and they say that these laws have not passed, have passed away except for the general equity. And what that means is that within these laws are still certain moral principles that are, we're, we're bound to, but we're not bound to those specific laws itself. So a good way to understand that would be to say, the command to build a rail around your roof may not apply to us, but if we have a swimming pool, then we still are required to build a fence around our pool so that the neighbor's kid doesn't wander in and drown himself. Um, the laws which govern land allotment 
but we don't have to follow the laws specifically about drawing lots for lands and making sure the biggest tribes get the biggest allotments because we don't have tribes of Israel to, to, to do any, you know, do that anymore. But that still may govern how we understand propriety in determining our children's inheritance, for example, that if we, we have three children, that we may find some moral ground to give one or the other more of a, a cut of the inheritance to sort of use that language. But we should look to the Old Testament law to see generally how does the moral law factor in to how we do this. And this is a complicated thing. It's not easy to do. But uh, we should take note that these moral laws may not directly apply to us in their specificity anymore, but that doesn't mean that they mean nothing for us in terms of understanding how it is that God functioned and God worked in the Old Testament, and that that still reflects him as a moral being and a moral, a moral character. Briefly, um, there are three uses of the moral law. The reason that these are important um, so we had three kinds of law, and there was the moral law, and then within the moral law, there's three ways historically that, that the, the Christian church has understood how it is that we use those laws. The reason this is important is because if you get these wrong, then it, it's a road to misunderstanding what God wants to do in Christians with the law, which can result in, in forms of legalism. It can result in a, a really troubling loss of assurance of salvation. Um, it, it can result in us holding ourselves up to a standard in a way that is not designed for us. And so if we're trying to measure ourselves against a measurement that's not intended for us, we're gonna come out with the wrong answer. You know, use the right tool for the right job. Um, you know, if, if you're trying to hammer in a nail and all you've got is a wrench, it might do in a pinch, but ultimately it's not gonna get the job done very well. So there are three uses of the law and these come under different names, but and different orderings. But the first use of the laws is called the pedagogical use. Uh, this is for non-Christians, and the purpose is to convict them of their sins. And so Paul talks about this in Galatians 3, uh, in chapter 19 through 26, where he talks about how the law was a pedagogue or it was a tutor. Um, it's this image of the the Roman family where the Roman, the, the potter of the family would hire this person to escort their child back and forth to school to make sure they got there on time. Um, but what Paul says is that this purpose was there until faith came, because after faith has come in verse 25, we're no longer under that tutor or that pedagogue. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so he's saying that there's a fundamentally different relationship between this moral law between the non-Christian on the one hand, who is still under the law uh, as image bearers of God, they're under this law as a, as a pedagogue, as a tutor who is kind of restraining their behavior and is showing them how far they fall from measuring up. Uh, this is, I think, what Paul is talking about in Romans 3.23, where he says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. He's not necessarily talking, uh, as sometimes I think it's said, he's not necessarily talking about God having some grand purpose or plan for us that we fail to accomplish. It's more saying that as image bearers, there's this moral obligation that we have to image God properly, to, to reflect God in a creaturely fashion in a way that is appropriate to him. And because we have not kept up the moral law, because we haven't obeyed his moral precepts, we fail to attain that glory that he has set out for us as his image bearers. Uh, the second use is called the civil use of the law. And this law functions uh, pretty much according to this light of nature, that governments on earth 
the, the ordained ruling authorities that God has established over people, that they, uh, that they are understanding and have this moral intuition to establish the law according to these moral precepts that God has put in place, that God has created. So that's why we see in Romans uh, 13, chapter 2, and he says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. For those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for God, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so because of this light of nature, because of this access to the moral law that all people have, governments and ruling authorities, even though they are and can be and are corrupted at times, there still is this impulse to establish laws according to these moral precepts. So the civil use of the law restrains sin in society. So the reason we don't have uh, people just murdering whenever they want, um, even though sometimes it seems like that if you watch the news, but the reason that most people don't go out and murder their neighbors is because uh, in part because the law has been established because there are consequences if they do that and the civil government will establish that. Um, just as a side note, and I'm, I'm not trying to be overly political, but this is part of the reason why it's important to su support law enforcement officers because they are established as God's servants to function in this capacity. They bear the sword in order to restrain evildoing in our society. It's also the reason why it's important to hold law enforcement accountable to the laws in an appropriate fashion, um, because they are God's ordained servants to do this work. And so if they fail to do this properly, uh, whether it's out of uh, malice or sin or negligence, if they fail to do this property or this properly, there should be accountability for that. And that extends to all ruling authorities, whether it's the local mayor or the selectmen, whether it's the president of the United States or the general of the, you know, the, the five-star generals of the military, all of these ordained ruling authorities should be held to account to establish and uh, function in this fashion. And if they don't, they should be held accountable. And so the final use of this moral law is called the moral or normative use of the law. And this is where it comes into us. And we're, we're uh, coming up on the, the runway here to start our descent into our landing. The moral law, as it applies to Christians, is there as a standard of living to show us what it means to be holy. And so uh, if you'll turn real quick with me to Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're going to read verses 5 through 10. So Romans 8, 5 through 10. For those who live according to the flesh have set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit have set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, whoever, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And so just as we saw in, in the Galatians passage, 
that the word law here is sort of used in a couple different ways. What Paul is doing here is he's saying that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live in the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. And then in verse six is the key here. He says, to set your mind on the things of the spirit is life and peace. And then verse seven, but to set your mind on the flesh is to fail to submit to God's law. And so sometimes there's a contrast between obeying the law and obeying the spirit. But in this case, obeying the spirit is obeying the law because failing to obey the spirit is failing to obey the law. And so this, this moral guide that God has given us, these principles to give us, these are here to structure and guide our lives in order to reveal to us how it is as regenerate people we are to walk. You can think of it sort of in this way. If we are indeed adopted by God, and then we are sons and daughters of, of the king of the universe. And so the moral law is given as a sort of guidebook for us to understand the proper way to carry ourselves as, uh, as royalty, as adopted sons and daughters of God. I, I don't think that they gave her a rule book. And if they did, she certainly is not following it. But you could kind of think of it as though at some point the queen wrote up some little, you know, little rule book and handed it to Meghan Markle and said, Here, here's how you be a princess of England. Like I said, she seems to be ignoring it if ever those discussions had, but there's a way that royalty conducts itself. And so the, the moral law, uh, which um, in places in, in the book of Hebrews is called the royal law, the moral law is given to us to show ourselves how do we conduct ourselves as sons and daughters of God. So the last thing I want to do is take all of this and apply it specifically to the preface of the Ten Commandments. So the first verse, God spoke these words. So it, it's, it's really straightforward. These are God's laws. He is the moral lawgiver. And so the, the, the words that were spoken come from God. They're inspired. They're applicable. They're perfectly just. They're perfectly wise. And then in verse two, this is where I think a lot of Christians get it wrong. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of, of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So it's important. God sets up this, this covenant code, this law code that he gives to his people. And he does that in the context of already having saved the people of Israel, right? He's already taken them out of Egypt. He's already taken them out of the house of slavery. So sometimes we read these, uh, if, we, if we lose sight of that difference between the, the pedagogical use and the civil or the moral use of the law, we lose sight of the fact that we are seeking to obey these commands as those who have already been justified, those who have already been adopted by God, and those who have already been positionally sanctified, who God is continuing to work on to make more and more sanctified. They're not laws given to the people for the purpose of making them God's people. They're laws given for the purpose of governing people who are already God's. If you take nothing else away from this, uh, this message today, take that away. These laws are given to us as Christians to govern a people who already are, are justified and loved and, and belong to God. We're already his people. So nothing we can do in terms of breaking law or failing to keep law, nothing we can do can change that because that's not what caused that state of affairs to come to be in the first place. So going back to our friend, uh, Benjamin Keach, one of the questions of his catechism asked, what does the preface of the 10 commandments uh, teach us? And he writes, the preface to the 10 commandments teaches us 
that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all his holy commandments. So as we said, all men are obligated to keep the moral law because God is the sovereign, right? Because he's the Lord, because he rules and reigns over all the universe. All men are commanded to keep that in light of being images of imagers of God. But even more so than that, we as God's people bear a special obligation to, uh, to do that. Bear a special obligation as his image bearers and those who are called by his name. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get into the third commandment. But those who are called by his name, we have this special obligation to obey these commandments. You can kind of think of it uh, to go back to our uh, British royal family analogy. Um, when, when President uh, Barack Obama met the queen, uh, he didn't follow the proper protocol. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was. I believe maybe he, he reached out to shake her hand or something like that, but it wasn't the proper royal protocol. And for the most part, they just let it go because the president of the U.S., yeah, he probably should have known, but he's not a member of the royal family. He's not expected to understand those protocols in the same way that a duke or a duchess coming to meet with the queen would be expected to know all of those details, all of those things in, in particular details, and to follow them to the letter of the law. And if they don't follow those protocols, then there are serious consequences for them. Um, there's a similar relationship that we have. Because we are God's people, we're expected to follow and obey his commandments in a way that is more significant and acute than the, the pedagogical use of the law. And the last, um, the last point that I want to make is something that I, I think ties into all of this. Because we often misunderstand the Ten Commandments and how they're structured, we read them as sort of a, a, a you must be this tall to ride, you know, to ride the roller coaster kind of a sign instead of uh, that little badge we wear around our necks to show we've already gotten into the amusement park. Because we read it in the wrong way. It, it affects how we understand how our salvation unfolds where it can. So we have to remember that as we study the law in these next two messages that are gonna come in, in June and July uh, at my next opportunities to preach with you, as we study these, we have to remember that we are not working to accomplish our justification. We're not even working to accomplish our sanctification. Justification, adoption, and sanctification are all things that God does to us. We don't, we don't help him with that. We don't, we don't sanctify ourselves any more than we justified ourselves, any more than we adopted ourselves, or any more than we're going to resurrect or glorify ourselves. The, the ordo salutis, the golden chain of redemption from start to finish is God's word. That does not mean that we are not active in certain aspects of that. It just means that we're not contributing to the energy that causes it. And so we can see this real briefly if we look at some uh, some scripture in in uh, Philippians. I'll just I'll, I'll just comment on them, and then if you'd like, you can look them up later and do your own uh, your own look at them. But in uh, Philippians one six, Paul assures the Philippians that he is confident that the good work that God uh, began in them that he would complete in them in the day of Jesus Christ. And so he's not leaving any room for someone who God began a work in regeneration, which then necessarily leads into justification to then fail to complete that work by that person not being sanctified or not being glorified. And then in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, he says to work out our own salvation 
but then he qualifies that to say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he, God works in us. God is the one that brings about not only the, the desire for us to do good works, but the actual good works themselves. And then Ephesians 2, 8 uh, through 10, which is a verse that all of us know well, he says, Paul says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepares beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this, this whole introductory sermon is designed to properly orient us to what it means to obey the law as a Christian, what it means to follow God's commands as a Christian when we read the Ten Commandments. So how, when we worship God as a Christian, it, it has a fundamentally different relationship than a lot of us think, a lot of Christians think. When we love our neighbors as ourselves, it's a fundamentally different thing than we, we sometimes understand it to be because we have to recognize that it is God who wills both to, or works, both to will and to work for our good pleasure. So if you'll pray with me briefly, we'll conclude our service. Father, thank you that you have given us um, your special revelation. Even though we understand and acknowledge that your law is accessible to us through the law of nature and through our own uh, intuitions um, by the Imago Dei, we thank you that you have given us clearly what you expect of us. And so I pray that as we uh, go from our, um, our service today, that as we perhaps read the Ten Commandments between now and the next time that we meet that you would help us to remember and acknowledge that we are not working to, um, to obtain salvation or to merit your pleasure, but we are working and, and striving to be a holy people and a righteous people, sheerly out of the gratitude for who you have already made us. For if we have the spirit of Christ, the spirit is in us life and righteousness already. We praise you and we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.